1: We're gonna get into
0: a lot of Bible
1: with today. So come with me in your Bibles to the first book of John chapter twenty and hold on to that page. I just need to set up this message a little bit. because when I came out of that that moment in the uh, in the RV, I walked back to the main tent, and just as I was walking up to the main tent, Pastor Jeff was walking out of the tent, and I just grabbed him, and I gave him the hugest hug, and I said, thank you so much for willing to be so vulnerable that you just, you brought me breakthrough that I didn't even know that I needed. And he looked at me, and he said, you know that the only reason I was able to preach that word is because of you, that that whole message came out of the conversation that you and I had driving out to the ranch in December, which by the way, was like a total God accident. I had lost my keys for three hours and was like ripped my entire house apart. And the only reason I was driving with him was because God had conveniently inconvenienced me so he could make that conversation happen. But we got, you know, and he said, and I don't know if you know this, Morgan, but when you preached at the Cherish Conference, my, my wife bought me a copy of your book and she gave it to me when she came home, and she said, it's time that you need to deal with your stuff. You need to deal with your, your wounds, and this is going to help you. And he said, because you were willing to do that, because you were willing to share your testimony in such a vulnerable way, it gave me hope that one day I'd be able to share mine. And so this message is for you. And I was just like, wow. I couldn't even, I was just like, okay, you think I was wrecked before, I'm wrecked even more now, but uh, it's amazing, God's principle of sowing and reaping, yeah. Yeah. that I did not want, you know, there's, there's not a part of me that thought I would ever be sharing the most vulnerable parts of my life on a stage or in a book. You know, I didn't think that I'm going to write my deepest, darkest secrets down in a book and then hand a copy to my mom and my dad because I knew that they needed to hear it from me first and not just from some recording. I never thought that would happen, but God called me out to do that. God delivered me from alcohol and drug addiction when I was 19 years old, and when I was first asked to preach a testimony on stage at Awaken, I was like, God, I don't know. You've pulled me out of a lot. I don't know what's safe for church. And he said, if you censor what I've done in your life, you're going to censor what I want to do through your life. And I'm like, (sighs) (sighs) but I was obedient. And when a pastor from Australia that was visiting a legit prophet called me out on the street of downtown La Jolla, didn't know me from Adam, and told me that I had a calling to write a book, I was obedient. And in my obedience, I was sowing seeds that would set Jeff free, and through him would eventually set me free, and it's just amazing how good God is. So we've got a lot of Bible this morning. Who loves the Bible, by the way? All right, all right. So in this time of confusion and mass deception, it is so important to know God's standard for truth. So I want you to come with me in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 20, verse 19, and we're going to go on a little journey. But just so I prepare you in advance, we're going to start at the end of the book of John, and then we're going to go a couple of pages over to the beginning of the book of Acts, and then back to the end of the book of John, and eventually we're going to finish up in the book of Isaiah. It's going to be a journey, but I promise you it'll be worth it. Are you with me? All right. Okay, so the book of John, chapter 20, verse 19. The same day... This is the same day that Jesus was resurrected and showed himself to Mary. That Sunday, he came out of the tomb, the first Easter, that same day at evening, the beginning of the first day of the week, the doors were shut. The disciples were hiding, assembled for the fear of the Jews, the fear of being persecuted. They'd just seen their leader murdered, and they were worried that they were next, and they're hiding in this room. And then Jesus comes through the wall. He came in and he stood in their midst. He walked through the walls. They were probably freaking out. He stood in the middle of the disciples and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands. He showed them his side. He showed them his scars, the evidence of his wounding, but the evidence of his healing. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas, who was called the twin, who was one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Who knows where he was, but he wasn't with them. The other disciples therefore said to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. And so Thomas said to the other disciples, "Well." Unless I see his hands, unless I see the print of the nail in his hands, and I'm able to put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. You know, there's some people that are just built a little differently. Thomas gets a lot of grief for being doubting Thomas. But if you look at the history of Thomas, he took the church to China. He took the church to India. He traveled farther than any of the other disciples did. And he was one that was a feeler. He wasn't just a seer. And Jesus met him in that. He didn't rebuke him in that. So after eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he walked through the wall yet again. And he stood in their midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas didn't ask. Jesus said to Thomas, reach your finger here and touch my scar. And look at my hands and reach your finger here. Put your hand right here. Put it in my side. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Then we're going to skip forward to Acts chapter 1, verse 4, page or two ahead in your Bible. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Hey, Lord, Lord, we need to know your schedule. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to him, none your business. Don't worry about it. It's not for you to know the times of the season which the Father has put on his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and till the ends of the earth. This is the Great Commission. Jesus is like, you don't need to know what I'm doing for me to tell you what you're going to do. Okay, so back to John 21. All of this happened over an eight day period. The disciples were assembled, it had been three days. You know, Jesus died during the ninth hour between two and three on Friday and was resurrected at dawn on Sunday around 6 a.m. which by the way, not three full calendar days but he was in the tomb for 40 hours. I don't know, I thought it was cool but (laughs) there's a message in there somewhere. 40 is the number of testing, he passed. So I'm not going to get into it but I you know he's walked through walls he's in the room he tells them look at my scars look at my scars not at my wounds he wasn't dripping blood the holy spirit had fully healed him and transformed him changed his wounds into scars and then he said I need you to look so you can be my witnesses You're going to go out across the world, and you're going to give your testimonies, and I need you to know that this happened to me. And because it happened to me, everything I said was true. Sin and death are defeated. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But then he told them to wait until they receive power. There is a difference between receiving the Holy Spirit and being filled with power of the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit when we get saved. When we receive the Holy Spirit, he starts doing that internal work inside of us and starts healing us and binding up our wounds. We need to get filled with power from the Holy Spirit so that our salvation isn't just for ourselves, so we can go out and we can be witnesses to Jesus till the ends of the earth. So he told them to wait. But instead of waiting, John 21.1, but after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Not Jerusalem. Yeah. Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee is like further than LA is from downtown San Diego. Right. They didn't have cars. Yeah. They didn't have plane, like planes. They had their little feet. And they left. They didn't wait. They ran away. They went back home. Jesus told them what they they were going to do. He showed them that he was healed. He showed them that they were going to go out and be his witnesses. He told them they had a call on their life. He told them to wait to receive power to fulfill their call. But they didn't wait. They left. Waiting's hard. They had just been through incredible trauma. They'd seen Jesus die on the cross. It was not a beautiful death. It was traumatizing, and then they're facing persecution and wondering which one of them is going to be next, and they're hiding in this room, afraid for their own lives, and Jesus, who had just died like 40 hours before, walks through the wall, and he's like, peace. There's a lot going on. He told them to wait in Jerusalem to be filled with power of the Spirit, to wait, to process out all of the crazy stuff they'd just seen, to wait, to have wisdom around their own healing so they could be filled with power from the Spirit, to go out with a powerful testimony. But they didn't wait. They went back to their old jobs. Jesus had brought these fishermen, average Joes from a podunk town, out of obscurity into the capital, gave them purpose, did everything he said he was going to do. They like walked with him for three years. They saw stuff that's like nuts happening. But they were so traumatized that they couldn't wait. He said, I need you to go I need you to wait. Don't go back to your former lives. Wait. But they didn't wait. They left. And after several days' journey in the city of Capernaum, where they were from, they went fishing. And after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, closest guy to Jesus. More mentions of Peter than anybody else in the Bible, maybe because Peter was jacked up, maybe because he was... Also amazing and is a wonderful representation of all of us. But Thomas called the twin, the guy who touched his scars, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. So Peter, James, and John, Jesus's three best friends, the ones that had been with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and had literally seen Moses and Elijah up in heaven as God opened the heavens to reveal. They were there when, when... The daughter of, uh, of Jairus' daughter was resurrected. They were with Jesus in the, in, in the garden of Gethsemane. And they went, they went back. Waiting was too much for them. They went back to their former lives. And there were two other disciples there, probably Andrew and Philip. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we're going to go with you also and they went out and immediately got into the boat and guess what they caught nothing god called them out of their small lives in a small town he called them into real eternal purpose and they went back to their former jobs they went fishing and that night they caught nothing they caught nothing when god changes you and calls you out there's no going back you know, God called me out of a lot of dysfunction, and then he healed me up in a lot of ways, and he called me into a discipleship school, a missionary equipping school that was the farthest thing from my life. I did not grow up in church. I grew up in the world. And God did this incredible work in me. I feel like Paul, where I just got like my whole brain scrambled, where I'm like, oh my gosh, everything that I've known has been a lie, and everything that I've done has been totally wrong. But during this process, I'm being groomed to be the global creative director for Hewlett Packard. I'm working with the guy that currently had that position, and he wanted me to take his job and then help him start an agency. And I'm being groomed for this incredible job, lots of money, power, prestige, all the things that I thought I wanted, and then I get this call to go to a discipleship school. And I'm like, God, why? I mean, this school, there there's like virgins there. I, I didn't even, I'd never even met a virgin. I thought that like the only reason that you would like save yourself till marriage is if you were like physically deformed or, or incredibly socially awkward or just straight up ugly. And then it would be like, oh, you're a virgin. You're saving yourself. But God's calling me to this school with these people that were so foreign to me, but I knew he was leading me, and I prayed, and I fasted, and I asked him, God, what should I do? And he said, you can take that job, it's your free will, but if you take that job, your life is going to end, and it's going to mean nothing, and I have so much more for you. And of course, that wasn't what I wanted to hear at all, but I'm telling you that God will change you, he will give you purpose, but there's no going back to that former life. So when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast their nets, and then they weren't able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who, by the way, is only referred to the disciple that Jesus loved in his own book, Said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now catch this. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He put on his fisherman's coat. And if you know anything about the times of the Bible, you'd know that the outer garment is your identity. That's when the, when the father restored the prodigal son. He put on his robe first to restore his identity. And so Peter is putting on his former identity. He's going to go meet with Jesus, but he's putting on this coat. He's putting on his identity, and he's saying, look, I know that you've called me Peter the Rock, but I'm just Simon. The fisherman, I denied you three times. I am totally disqualified for this, this disciple thing. You called me to be a fisher of man, but I'm just a fisher of fish. And that's all I'll ever be. Don't, don't, just, I'm going to put on this coat. And I'm going to tell you that I can't do this, that it's too much. And then Peter does a very Peterish thing to do. He jumps out of the boat with his coat on into the water to swim to shore. That's how jacked up he was is in in his mentality. He's like, I need to show you, I need to tell you, this is not for me. So skip forward to verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Keep in mind, the whole time, the author of this book, the disciple John, has been calling Peter, Peter. That's what Jesus called him. His birth name had been Simon, which means flimsy reed, but Jesus called him Peter, the rock. Now, Jesus talks to Peter, but he calls him Simon, son of Jonah. He agrees with Simon's personal pronoun. I called you out of Simon. I called you to Peter. But now you think Peter's call is too much for you, so you've gone back to Simon. you put on Simon's clothes. I'll call you what you see yourself as. And I'm just going to remind you that your dad's name was Jonah. And just like your father's namesake, who had a call on his life to go somewhere... I told him to go somewhere, and he chose to go somewhere else. Okay, Simon. But Jesus didn't let Simon stay Simon, just like the good shepherd doesn't go chill with the lost sheep in the wilderness. I know there are many people use that, that parable out of context, that all three parables, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son are about restoration. They are not about cosigning dysfunction. The, lost, the, the good shepherd doesn't go out and see the lost sheep in the wilderness and like, oh, what's up, bro? This dysfunction, it's so awesome. He immediately goes, picks up that little jacked up sheep, puts him over his shoulder and brings him back into community to restore uh, the hundred. Peter denied Jesus three times after he died. Then Jesus told Peter and the other disciples to wait on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And right at the same place that Jesus had met these disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he restores Peter. Sometimes we can get so far off track as Christians and we can turn our faith into performance, something that it was never supposed to be, and we need to go back to that place where our faith started. And I bet some of you here even are thinking, I need to actually physically go back to that place. You don't. Anytime you want to, you can close your eyes and you can ask Jesus to take you back to that place where it started. And he will, if you're willing. When I go and do ministry, when I go pray for people, sometimes I have to go back to that place. But that's the place where I receive power. And if you can go back to that place to receive power like a defibrillator getting charged up, you can go release power from that place. You don't need to do it on your own. This is not performance. This is true restoration, and this is receiving power that we can't manufacture on our own. So there's a whole other message in that conversation with Peter, but for the sake of today, Just know that Jesus restores Peter in the most beautiful way and then Peter and all the other disciples go back to Jerusalem. They get filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately Peter fulfills what Jesus had asked him to do. Peter was called to be the disciples to the religious Jews. He was meant to go evangelize to the religious Jews. And when he gets filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he goes out and becomes the most successful preacher in the entire New Testament. When he was filled with power, he goes and preaches, and 3,000 religious Jews got saved that day. Sometimes God just needs to course correct Even if you feel you're disqualified, he can bring you back. And when he gets you on course, man, he can fill you with power to do the most purposeful thing that you were created to do. So now turn to uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah, the perfect one, would come out of the house of Jesse. And the Holy Spirit would land on him. Jesus said to the disciples, it's better that I should go so that you can receive power. Power. At Emerge, the Bishop Dale Bronner, in his last message, he said something just at the beginning of the message. It was like a throwaway line, but it blew my mind. He said that the word comfort comes from the root of the word fortress. And I always like to look things up just to like, you know, fact check the pastor. (laughs) Comfort comes from the Latin calm, meaning expressing intensive force. And fortis means strong. The real meaning of comfort is to strengthen greatly. A lost and dying world doesn't need a little pat on the back, a little like, and, you know, oh, prayers, hope, hope, hope and prayers, likes, and it doesn't need that. It doesn't need a little pat on the back. A little, the lost and dying world doesn't need a, a there, there. A lost and dying world needs a here, here. God's done it in me, and because he's done this in me, because he's set me free, he, he's, he is faithful to set all of you free. He's no respecter of persons. In every testimony is the spirit of prophecy. You can trust him at his word. And in every one of his disciples, he is writing a living epistle on our heart. He is fulfilling his word in our lives, and we're meant to be witnesses. He didn't call the disciples to be teachers. You can argue with a teaching, but you cannot argue with a testimony. So, he said, it's better that I should go. Revelation twelve eleven says that the accuser was cast down to hell and he was overcome by the blood of the lamb, which was Jesus' sacrifice and the word of their testimony. Jesus said to them that it's far better that I should go. I tell you the truth. It's better that I should go away for if not, the comforter will not come unto you. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. What Jesus was saying to his disciples is that there are things that you can't understand right now. You can't handle the truth about yourself. You can't handle the truth about me. I've shown you that I've been resurrected. You've seen my scars, the proof that I've been healed. But you need to wait because there's one that's coming that will fill you with all knowledge and power. He will give you supernatural understanding of things that you just can't see right now. And I'm not going to send you out empty-handed. I'm going to fill you with power. And it was better that he should go, because when Jesus was here on earth, he was the only one that God's spirit could land on. I don't know if you know this, but God's spirit can only land on a place that's undefiled, on a place that's pure, and he was the only pure, undefiled, perfect person that's ever walked the earth. And that's what's such a miraculous thing about the cross, that because he poured out his blood, we get covered in his blood, that his righteousness makes us righteousness. When we accept the invitation, we're no longer saved sinners, but we're actually saints. And it's only then when we recognize our weakness and that we've been weak. And not only have we been weak, we've also been wicked. There are things that I've done out of weakness, but I made decisions that I was conscious of those decisions may, come out, may have come out of weakness, but those decisions were wicked. And I need to be covered because I can't work out my own wickedness. A wicked person can't work out their own wickedness. I needed an infusion of righteousness that God needed to put his spirit in me. God needed to make me righteous so that his spirit could land on me. And the only way that that could happen was that Jesus had to die. That's the gospel. And he said, it's better that I should go. You know, Moses delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. He delivered them out of bondage. But then they had to wait in the desert, and their waiting season was long. Because they'd signed up for worldly comfort. And God needed to give them real comfort. He needed to build a fortress in their heart that was impenetrable so that they could go and take the promised land. And there's some interesting things about the promised land. The Bible says that God left those cities inhabited so that his people could learn to fight again because they'd lost the ability to fight. They'd gotten so comfortable just getting taken care of even though they were slaves. And God needed to bring them out of slavery into a place where he could just be their everything. Their covering by day from the hot sun, their fire by night to give them warmth, bringing food down from heaven. And he also needed to work things out in their hearts because he needed his people to be his people. And you might read the, those three books of the Bible, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and think God was so harsh. All they were doing was complaining. But let me tell you, if God is trying to work a miracle out in your life and through your life, he can't afford you to be around a complaining spirit. That thing needs to go. So God is real. And there's a, a beautiful thing in that, that like there's a, a message for another time, but I, I did a message on, on Moses and Moses overcame a stutter by singing. And the, his song, the song of Moses is still being sung in heaven. And that song is a prophetic word, but it's also a, a, a telling, a testimony of all of the things that God did for his people. And they sing it over and over and over again in heaven. Testimony unlocks us. Thankfulness ushers in the presence of God, like l- opens the doors into his throne room. We need a testimony and we need a grateful heart. And people need to know your testimony. So, my message today is called Show Your Scars. Like I said, Jesus didn't show his wounds, he showed his scars. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit is the only one that can heal his wounds. But when he comes in, he binds up our wounds, but he leaves the scars. Because a lost and dying world needs to know that he's real. You know, I was healed from drug addiction, alcoholism, sex addiction, porn addiction, anxiety, same-sex attraction, an eating disorder, chronic pain, and much, much more. And uh, like I said though, it emerged there was this little piece of the puzzle that was missing. And Pastor Jeff shared his scars. And in sharing that, I got, got some healing. My um, my mom kidnapped me from France where I was born when I was just shy of three years old and she brought me to Vancouver. Her husband, my, uh, my father, was an emotionally abusive alcoholic who was incredibly immature and she just, she couldn't stand the abuse anymore and she wanted to get me out. Because in France, when somebody files for divorce, the father always gets custody no matter what. And she brought me to Vancouver to save me from him But she also took me away from a father that I really loved. And because of some of the things he'd call drunk dial, say all these things that he was going to kill her, that he was going to kill himself, and she didn't think it was safe to just, oh, yeah, sure, take my son. (laughs) So he had uh, supervised visitations. And I don't know if any of you have had supervised visitations before, but they're awkward. You know, you're playing with your kid, and then there's some woman with a notepad that's like, awkwardly kind of hovering, taking notes at everything. And he was immature. He couldn't take it. He couldn't wait. So he said, I'm done. During those visitations, the probably five or six that I had, though, every single time, all he would do is bleed all over me. He was wounded, but he didn't have any covering. He didn't have friends around him that could be like, dude, you're jacked up. You need to get, you need to get right. But instead, he would just be like, Morgan, I love you, but I hate your mother. You know, let's not talk about your mother. Let's just talk about you. But you know, you are so much like your mother. You know, Morgan, I am your father, but I am not your dad because your mother is not letting me raise you. I made you, but I don't raise you. Morgan, you know, your mother, she goes all the time. And I'm like, don't you want to hear about how I'm doing in soccer? Don't you care that I just won, like, trophies in swimming? Don't you care that I'm, like, learning to play the piano? No. And I got to tell you, if you're a leader, you need a covering. We're not meant to do this alone. God said it's not good for man to be alone. And if you're a man, you're meant to lead. And if you're leading, you need to process up, not process down. Because processing down, especially if you're doing it to your kids, is abuse. They call that emotional incest. And just like physical incest, it leaves wounds. So, I didn't see him after uh, my fourth birthday. But when I was five, my mom started dating this guy that was like the guy that I wanted to be my dad. He was the guy that took an interest in me and was like there to cheer me on and was like teaching me how to spin a basketball on my finger and he took us on vacation to uh, Club Med in Guadeloupe in the, the Caribbean. And we were doing all sorts of fun stuff together and then a week into the vacation, he took me up to the room and, and he had me shower with him and he molested me. And then he touched me and he, had, he made me touch him and then my mom miraculously burst in before too much had happened. And she just, she didn't freak out, she just took me away, put me in the office of the Club Med and then was away for a couple of hours getting all of our stuff. But while I'm sitting in this office on this little chair all by myself with nobody talking to me, I just felt like I'm in so much trouble. I thought the whole thing was my fault. And what I saw when Jeff was preaching is the reason that I had so much shame is because I knew I didn't try to stop him. I didn't want that to happen, but I was so afraid that if I rejected him that he'd reject me and then I wouldn't get a dad. And then my mom got me in that office and on our flight home she took me to Fort Lauderdale where this guy's sister lived. And I sat in the car for like two and a half hours while my mom and his sister were sitting on the lawn of this house crying. And I'm thinking... (laughs) What did, I, what did I do? And then we never talked about it. And when I was nine, my mom married a wonderful man, an incredible man who has been such an incredible father to me. He was like really the dad that every kid should want. Even though he adopted me, he made sure that adoption was finished before my brother was born so I would always be his firstborn son. I never felt like I was playing second fiddle to anybody. His parents like scooped me up and brought me in. He is amazing. But even though he was amazing, I had so much shame and so much woundedness from the rejection that I experienced that no matter how much he told me he loved me, it just felt like it was falling off of me like Teflon. And that was true in every area of my life. I had well-attended birthday parties and people would tell me, oh, you're so smart, you're so great, you're so this, you're so that. And I'd be like, I feel nothing. I needed real healing in my soul. And when I heard the gospel preached for the first time, I heard something that I thought was too good to believe. I had, been, you know, I had been in dysfunctional relationships. I dated a woman that was a sociopath. There was so much manipulation and everything else going on in that relationship that I just opted out. And I thought it would be better than to try to continue to fight to figure out how to have relationships with women that maybe I'd just go sleep with men. And that cycle of shame caught me in that lifestyle for a while. And then finally, God sent this backslidden Christian, my hairdresser who was living a double life, and I'm sitting in his chair getting my hair cut, and he looks me straight in the eyes in the mirror, and he says, I've seen you. I was like, So what? I've seen you too. <laughs> I know what you're doing. You know what I'm doing. It's not like it's a secret. He said, yeah, I've seen you what, what you're doing, but I, I need you to know that if you keep doing that, one day you won't be able to do anything else. And just that sentence sent the fear of God in me. And I saw the reality of the life that I was living that was completely unfulfilling, that it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I just felt stuck and I didn't know any way to get out. But God got somebody that was every bit as jacked up as I was and used him somehow to get me out of that. And then I started asking questions about faith because I knew that I needed a God that was bigger than my intellect. I thought I was spiritual. I'd gotten sober in AA when I was 19 years old. I read so many spiritual books, but it was all head knowledge. I had a, a, a mentor that asked me to just look at the fruit of the people that were practicing some spiritual way of life. And I saw, oh my gosh, all of the Christians actually have the lives that I wanna lead. So I asked one of them to take me to church and I heard the gospel preached for real. And what I heard was that it wasn't about me being perfect, which is what I thought Christians believed, by the way, that it was about me letting God be my perfect father. And like a perfect father, that he would raise me in his time and in his way by his power, that I didn't need to have it all figured out. In fact, it would be better if I didn't have a whole plan about it and just let him father me. And I truly got fathered by God. And God had healed up and bound up a lot of my wounds, but he left the scars. So I could show you my scars and tell you that because he did it for me, that he can do it for you too. And I wanna show you what restoration looks like in my life. This is my family. And we're not just smiling because a photographer was taking our picture. This is like literally what our house is like all the time. There is so much laughter and joy and purpose and understanding and love. And I thought I was completely disqualified from ever having a life that looked anywhere close to that. I thought I was especially disqualified from ever being a husband and ever being able to be a father to a son. But how many of you know that God doesn't leave us unfinished, that he completes every good work that he starts? (laughs) And I know, thank you. (laughs) If you feel because of your past that you're not lovable, that you may never even be able to love yourself, I need to tell you, or, or let others love you for that matter, it is a lie from the pit of hell. God knew you before he formed you. He has always loved you, and he will always love you. There is nothing you can do to get him to stop loving you. And I mean that. I am a product of that promise. If you've been a Christian and this message sounds like it's something that's too good to believe or because you've been sitting in the house of God your whole life just following rules, I want to tell you that there is so much more to life than just that. I want to pray. So can I have everyone in this place bow their head and close their eyes? If you're sitting in a chair wrestling with the question, can I dare believe that God is as good as this guy says he is, whether it's your first time to church or your last time to church or you've been in church your whole life, if you know your life's not what it should be and you know you need a real relationship with Jesus, in a couple of seconds I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray with you. If you know you've been playing church or trying to keep it together on the surface, but there are still deep, deep wounds that need to be healed, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And especially if you know the devil has got your tongue, even if you've been mostly healed, but you've been terrified, to truly share what God has done in your life, I want you to raise your hand too. You know, the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And if God has transformed you, if he has led you out of the desert into your promised land, that your life looks like a promised land, but you can't say so, it's because you're still a little bit in the desert and shame has got your tongue. I want to pray for you specifically that God would take away that shame And if there's still healing that needs to go on in your life, that he would swoop you up and surround you with real, vulnerable, loving community that would be able to do that work in partnership with him so that you can go say so because a lost and dying world needs your testimony. Finally, if you're here and you feel a little like Peter, you're discouraged, maybe you've run away, been far away, but you know you need to come back to the place where you met Jesus. I want to pray for you, too. Is there anyone like that in here right now? If there is, raise your hand, I want to pray with you. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. God bless you, 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 God bless you. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. God bless you, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Hands going up all over here. It takes courage to raise your hand. It takes courage to share your testimony and if you're still thinking like, gosh, if I raise my hand, God might disrupt my life. God never destroys the seed that he sows. God won't take away who he created you to be. He won't make you feel like you're some foreigner to yourself. He will make you feel fully alive in him, he will give you purpose beyond what you can even imagine. And if you've been sitting there thinking, if I raise my hand, I I I don't know what's gonna happen. Let me tell you, you need to put up your hand, you need to have a little faith, and God is going to do an incredible work in you. Is there anybody like that in here? God bless you, God bless you. God bless you, 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 God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. All right. I want us to pray this prayer together. If you raised your hand, I want you to be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We don't, we don't just know how to be friendly. We actually know how to be a friend, and we're going to walk this journey out with you. But everybody, repeat after me. Father God, I thank you that you so loved me that you sent your one perfect son to die in my place. Jesus, I believe you died for my sin and rose from the dead. God, I thank you for forgiving my sin and calling me out of darkness into the light, into freedom, into purpose, and into the lives of the people that you've purposed for me to touch. Jesus, come into my heart, and into my life, and show me how to live for you. Surround me with real community that will love and encourage me until you call me home, amen. Let's give everybody a big round of applause. All right. So I don't wanna just leave you with that. We've got a response lounge over here. We've got some of our best people in our church. If you have been on the outskirts, that you are not in community, that you know you need connection, let them pray for you, let them equip you with resources, let them give you some gifts, and let them get you into next steps, get into a connect group, get to men's prayer, get to women's prayer, get surrounded, that this isn't just a place where you check the box for an hour and a half on Sunday, but this is this is life, this is purpose. I also mentioned that I wrote a book, and I'm not up here looking just to sell books to you, but I feel like it's a really good resource that if you're feeling like, gosh, maybe I've screwed up a lot in my life, I guarantee you I have also screwed up a lot. And this whole book is just God throwing me under the bus one time and another time and another time until he was able to work out some of the things in me that needed to be healed and then calling me into a truly transformed life. We also have recovery here at Awaken Church and my wife and I are so honored to be able to lead the recovery ministry. Jenny, can you stand up? Can I get a round of applause for my beautiful wife, Jenny? Jenny is my promised land. God needed to get all of this stuff worked out in the desert so he could deliver me a promised land, and he delivered me a promise beyond my wildest expectations. I love doing life with you, and I love what we get to do together. We have seen so many transformed lives. People that were literally committing suicide days before they met us and now they are leading ministries, married, owning homes. Totally transformed. those, Those stories aren't uncommon. They're common because Awakened Church is a house of transformation. We have recovery at Tonight, you could go to our East County campus. We have a seven o'clock recovery meeting there. It is Christ-centered, it is spirit-filled, we do deliverance, it is powerful. Monday night, here at this campus, we have recovery at 7 p.m. Tuesday at Balboa campus, recovery at 7 p.m. There's an incredible community, whether you're struggling with a drug addiction, alcohol addiction, or just broken relationships. We've got a lot of people with codependency, love addiction, sex and porn addiction, gambling addiction, anger issues, and you can find healing in that place. I want to invite you to join us. Jenny and I are at Balboa. Mark and Kimmy are here every, uh, they're awesome. Every Monday night, every Tuesday night, every Sunday night, there's a place for you here. But like I said, we're not just friendly, we know how to be friends. So as you go out from here, be friendly with the people around you. Take somebody to lunch, take somebody to coffee, that phone that feels like it's a thousand pounds, reach out to somebody that you know you need to talk to in your life, get in community, show up at 5.30 for men's prayer on Tuesday morning, come to women's prayer on Thursday, do all of the things that we, so we can surround you We're not looking to control you. We're looking to love you back to life so that you can go and do the same with others. But thank you so much for giving me your time today and God bless you as you go.
0: Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com